Our uh, reading today is from uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 23. If you've got a church Bible, uh, that's page 1029. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eritrea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was all baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This is the second uh, sermon uh, out of ten that we are pursuing, and um, the idea is to focus on Jesus. So tonight, Jesus, the Christ, and that reading that we've had just now, if you keep your Bible open there, that'll that'll be good. What we have in 
this uh, reading in Luke chapter 3 and the whole chapter is a whole series of, of contrasts and it's a, it's a chapter, uh, if you like, a classic study in contrast. But let me try to um, put this into some sort of historic setting first of all. On the death of the great emperor Augustus in AD 14, Tiberius, a brutish and debauched individual, somebody like the past Saddam Hussein, or worse, uh, he climbs the steps to the throne of the Roman Empire, itself showing signs of internal moral corruption. The 15th year of his reign would place the beginning of John's ministry. Not the best time to be called to preach the gospel. Let's stay with this a bit more. And from this broad panorama of the, uh, the Roman Empire, Luke, as if with a telescope, focuses on the land of Palestine, this troublesome thorn in the flesh of Rome. And so they appointed the famous Pontius Pilate, a cruel, anti-Semitic leader. And then the Roman governor, Herod, also called Antipas, from our reading, the half-brother of Philip, the Tetrarch. They were, they inherited from their father, Herod the Great, a whole legacy of oppression and corruption and scandals within marriages, within politics, and the jealous murder recorded in history of three sons. And then from the heads of state, Luke narrows down this telescope even further and focuses on so much for the prevailing politics of the day, now to the religious leaders, and he introduces the high priests. Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, both of them pompous, insatiable for power, with Caiaphas wearing the official vestments, but the former being the high priest Annas, pulling the strings of influence in the country. And into that morass, if you like, that moral situation of corruption, and there it is, massive contrast. You come to chapter, th verse, chapter 3 and verse 3, or at the end of verse 2, the word of the Lord came to John. And you see, God seems to bypass that whole situation, and the word of the Lord came to John. That sets the, 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 the scene, if you like, for what we're thinking about tonight. And all I'd like to do is to leave just two things uh, as part of um, this, this sermon. That's the setting, and we're thinking about John's message, and then we're looking at John's mission. Just two things, and see how it uh, applies to us here tonight. And uh, the first in verses 3 to, to 14. Um, to a nation then, um, disillusioned by religion and cynical towards 
politics and politicians. Sounds a bit like today, a little anyway, doesn't it? John's message is full of hope and authenticity. And this is the refreshing thing of John's message. And it's pretty abrasive in places, as we shall see, that he is at least two things. He is uncomplicated and he is uncompromising. The converse or the contrast to that list of people that we've referred to. Uncomplicated and uncompromising. Uncomplicated in the sense, verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's not complicated. And as far as uncompromising, how to lose a congregation. Look at verse 7. You brood of vipers. That's not PC, is it? Well, I'm not suggesting that we all take John's approach, but nevertheless, there it is. So it is this Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. The negative and the positive. That is an integral part of authentic uh, Christian gospel. Just turn to a reference to John in in John's Gospel, chapter 1, just to see uh, how this uh, fits the the context here. John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 29. Here is his, um, his preaching. The Lamb of God. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him. Look at him. A turning from and a turning to the Savior. And surely this is the very essence of the good news. Um, if you come back to Luke chapter 3 and look at verse 18, for instance, you see there it's recorded. And with many other words, John, John the Baptist, exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. John's message, without Hesitation pointed to Jesus and away from himself. That, in a way, is something every preacher should do, but in a way, it's something every Christian should do. And we read in that uh, Psalm 29, the voice, at least seven times, and it resonates with all of this. John was the voice crying in the wilderness. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy as he would speak to the people. And so in verses 4 to 5, look at this. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In a different translation, every ravine will be filled up. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough road smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, that gives us three things here that were true of John and ought to be true of every one of us who claim to know Jesus Christ. John's responsibilities were threefold. Just, you see that prophecy from Isaiah. The first is to clear the way. Clear the way. Clear the way 
for the Lord. And then, as part of that, prepare the way for the Lord. And then, thirdly, get out of the way of the Lord. The whole point of Isaiah's prophecy, the end of it is this, that people will see the salvation of God. And they see that in the transformed lives of his people. That's John's threefold responsibility. And it's ours. And it's ours. So when you think of this chapter in a series of contrasts, if you like, John was the voice. Jesus is the word. John was a lamp. Jesus is the light of the world. John was a man. Jesus is the Christ. And John's sermons whetted people's spiritual appetite for Jesus. And any Christian, any preacher, anybody worth their salt that our lives, our voice should whet people's appetite for Jesus or preparing the way lay a bridge of friendship that people can pass over it and have an encounter with Jesus Christ and all these things is the normal thing of being a believer or put it another way his job was to make people hungry for the Savior hungry enough to change their lives And secondly, as you look at these verses 7 to 14, his message. We're just focusing some of these points of his message. Yes, it's, verse 7 is, is it's not the best way to win an audience, is it? I mean, but when you think of the context, there are times when a directness of, of preaching and speaking is necessary. If people sincerely believed that their spiritual security was in their heritage as offspring of Abraham, then they were misguided. And if people today feel that their security is the church or baptism or the sacrament or other things, then albeit sincere, they are mistaken. Pedigrees, spiritual pedigrees, don't produce fruit. They don't. A tree may be lush with religious accomplishments, embellished with Bible knowledge. But if it bears nothing, then it is of no heavenly value or earthly use. And it's interesting, isn't it? Its destiny is the axe, not the tree, the root. The root. That's what it says. 
And only genuine repentance brings salvation. And Christians and people, though we need to be perhaps much more um, kinder than John, I think, more like the Lord Jesus in the way that we speak about our faith. Roots of repentance produce fruit of faith. And that's all that some people have to go on. And they may not be terribly impressed with our cogent arguments. We need them. But how often it is said, convince somebody against their will, they're of the same opinion still. So that's his message. A lot more could be said, clearly, and uh, the, the, the whole ethical requirement of, uh, of showing fruit in terms of godliness and contentment with, with, our, with our wages and, and, and our lifestyle and all of those things. But we're moving on to John's mission, and this is where we come to verse 15 to 20. And uh, I want... Uh, uh, to pose uh, a, a question to you um, about mission statements. There it is. Uh, it's going to come up in a moment. Yes, we'll just hold it there. Are we familiar with um, mission statements? Uh, let's, before they come up, um, okay, help me out here. I'll try to... Um, Tesco are in trouble at the moment, aren't they? Well, not little, only 20 billion or something, but... Um, what's their statement? Every little helps. Thank you. Don't be afraid to speak. Every little helps. Okay? John Lewis are doing very well. What's their mission statement? Don't mumble. I want to hear you. Come on. Yes? Right. With one voice. There you go, you see. Okay. Um, shall we have them all up? Kathy, let's just have a look at these. Right. Zanussi. Who said that? Ken. Leslie. Again, the appliance of science. This good? Write them. Neil Turton, this will be no problem for you, but you keep quiet for the moment. The mission statement, the City of London. Finances? You, you're a city slicker? No? No? Who said that? Who said that? Where? Good girl. Yeah, but you're a London. It is. They did a survey among the bank. Oh, Neil, you did know that, but you're pretending not to. Are you? Okay. They did a survey among that brood of vipers in the city. I could probably say it truthfully in that context. Um, what is the mission statement of the City of London. And Hester, give it again. My word is my bond. Thank you. My word is my bond. What a massive contradiction in a sense when you think about all the press and all that's taken place. Good. Thank you. They did a survey among um, the city bankers and uh, three quarters of them hadn't even heard of it. Little wonder. Um, okay. And what are we, we going to... Boots. Boots. <laughs> Don't go to sleep. Come on. Any? 
Here it is. Well, I know this because my brother worked for Boots. The customer is always right. Even when they're not. The customer is always right. And um, LCBC. Right. You get a medal, Paddy. Good for you. Right. We all knew that. But so Paddy was speaking for us. Okay. So do you see? Right. Now, you may ask in the, now, uh, where is this going? <laughs> Let's look, move on from this to a personal mission statement. So you've got like schools. If you, the school, my school that we went to was manners maketh man. It's the thing you saw every day in assembly. Manners maketh man. And I guess you, in your school or what college or what have you, um, have, have uh, statements. Okay? But here's the personal mission statement. Um, yeah, let's have them up, Kathy, please. You've been holding. Right. CT stud. I want to run a rescue shop. No. Okay. Uh, who, who is CT stud? The founder of WEC. WEC is World Evangelization for Christ. He said, and he was the famous cricketer, an aristocrat, an extremely wealthy man who gave it all to mission and gave up an excellent career as a, as a cricketer. Um, said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And many people embraced that. And the, the work of WEC is quite extraordinary. So, a personal mission statement. Others can take that up and be challenged by it. What about the Apostle Paul? What do you think his mission statement was? Yes, I would say so. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Somehow, as Christians, we don't believe that. But actually, the death of a believer is great gain. It's a grief to us who have known people and missed them. But we shouldn't lose sight of that. To die is gain. Uh, who's this? Jeff Stedman. What's my mission statement? Well, I've got a couple. But I, in, in 35 years, I've tried to think, how do you reduce what you're doing down to a, a statement? It's very difficult to do that. If you were to do that, when you think about your family, your work, your school, your children... You name it. Have you ever done that exercise? Well, um, I've always tried to live this out for the last 35 years, and it's this. Preach to broken hearts, and I'll never lack a congregation. And that's followed by another one of these uh, statements, is this. Most of us are like the rest of us. That way we will connect with each other. You won't have to go too far to know that some of the struggles that people have spiritually, morally, and in many ways are just the same as yours. Okay? Every Christian, I hope that if nothing else for this sermon tonight, that you would try as an exercise to go home and say, okay, for me, I want to narrow this down now. I want to think through so that I can make a statement and God help me to live it out. 
what we have here then as we come back to uh, John the Baptist, and there's the question, a, a mission statement, uh, it's quite inspiring. And uh, turn to uh, John chapter 3 and verse 30. It's a, it's a, a parallel reading to uh, Luke 3. Okay? So we've looked at mission statements, personal statements. Now here's John the Baptist. And it comes out of this. And it's quite wonderful. And you, if you, if, you know, perhaps you could take this yourself. So it's John chapter 3 and verse 30. And he's thinking about his calling. And he's thinking about his life. He says, He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become lesser. A true test of our humility often is our willingness, really our willingness, to put Jesus first in our lives. The, the authorized version is, I think, even more concise, uh, where it says in six words, he must increase, sorry, seven words. The King James Version John's mission statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I say to you tonight that this is the source of true humility. And it's this, that when you say that, or another translation says, he is everything and I am nothing. If I believe that, I'm not going to take that so many times. If I really believe that, then I'm going to be a much more focused Christian. I'm not going to be so concerned about my feelings, that actually the gospel is about Jesus, not only about me. And he comes first. So for every believer, a constant commitment to increase the glory of Christ and a corresponding decrease of self is what we learn from John as he introduces the Christ. Stay with John 3 just for one final thing and then we'll come to our, uh, our conclusion. John 3, 27 to 29. Again, he's introducing... He's introducing Jesus here, John chapter 3, verses 27 uh, to 29. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. And then he uses an illustration. Here it is. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend, can we change that for a moment? The friend, in our culture, the best man. Okay, see 29? So if we start by saying, the best man who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And then he says, he must become greater, I must become less. I'll tell you one thing that I've learned to do over the years with, um, with weddings is this, to say, I'd like to meet um, the bridal party, you know, the, 
lovely bridesmaids and so on. And then always ask, always ask, where's the best man? And somebody will say, and I say, can I have a quick word with you? And I said, do you the best man? He said, yes. Well then, don't be the worst man. It usually calls for a response. And I would say to them, what I mean is this, that I have been to enough weddings to hear the most rubbish speeches about inane things and trivia and much worse from the best man who embarrass parents and can be a bit of a nuisance. Now you see what John is saying. The best man, it's a contradiction actually, the groom is the best man, but we use that. He says, I am here to serve him. Could you imagine a best man getting in the way of a marriage service? Can you think of a best man who loses the rings? The best man who is an embarrassment? Well, the latter, I've had too many examples. We are the best man in the wedding. And we are here to serve the groom and the bride. And we rejoice that they've come together, that they've expressed these vows and we couldn't be more happier. We're a little bit nervous because we've got a big responsibility. And yes, we've got a bit of a speech and if anything is wrong, we've got to be at hand. That's what we like for Jesus. It's exactly that. Be the best man. Be the best woman. The best that you can for Jesus. Every believer To focus most on Christ is to focus less on self. And conversely, every believer who is so preoccupied with self, he or she is focused less on Jesus. That's a great lesson from John who points to the Lord Jesus. Be the best in Christ that you can be. And as we bring this to a conclusion, you see in these final verses, 21, 22, Jesus presents himself, and this has been a source of much discussion for baptism. And John recoils and he, he refuses, he remonstrates. This is not so. How could you do that? This is for repentance. And yet he learns that he is to fulfill all righteousness. He is so to identify with sinners in his baptism throughout his ministry, and ultimately be the supreme sacrifice on the cross. And this is the first of three recorded occasions when the Father speaks from heaven. This is the first, the second, as you know, is the transfiguration, and the third was the week before the cross. So, the conclusion. We have the word of God. And we are called to be the voice. What are we to do? Well, in school, 
at home, at work, wherever we find ourselves, we are to clear the way for the Lord. Let's be sure that we can do that. Maybe hard work. Maybe we have to remove prejudices that people have, and people have many of those. Just clear the way. And then, a more positive thing, let's prepare the way. From this wonderful prophecy from Isaiah. And what is John doing here? He's shattering the silence of 400 years of no prophetic word. And he points to Jesus. We may have to shatter the silence of months or maybe even years. No prophetic word for people. Clear the way for the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And let's be honest now. Get out of the way of the Lord. Be the best you can, not the worst. And really rejoice that Jesus is actually everything. Everything. And it doesn't really matter very much what attention you and I have. What is important is Jesus. It's about him. It's about him.